This week on The Futurists. I think that it's it's hard to to understand how hard it's going to be to build as long as we don't understand what it is that we that we will need to build. You know, there, there is this representation of the metaverse, of the spatial web as the Ready Player One experience, which is most probably what, what it's not going to end up being. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so I think that the why and the, the what have not been answered yet. Digital twin is really a way to represent the outside world to enhance the interaction of real user with this real world. So, example, if I do a digital twin of the of an entire airport, I will be able to enhance the interaction that my travelers going through this airport have with the airport facilities. Well, welcome back to The Futurists. I'm Rob Tursik and my co-host, Brett welcome. King, here with me. Hi. Hey, Brett, you know, one of the things we keep hearing about on this show, it keeps turning up, is this topic of the metaverse. This uh, this idea that someday we're going to be spending all of our time, not on Zoom, like we all have been for the last couple of years during the pandemic, but instead in sort of a 3D version of Zoom, uh, where we'll be able to be in the same place and look around and look up and look down. You might think of it as like an immersive game world uh, that we're gonna spend all our time in. Now there's a lot of controversy about this because candidly that vision is pretty far out in the future. But what a lot of people don't know is that real-time 3D has quietly grown to become an enormous force. And I'd say real-time 3D is even big, is way bigger than the metaverse. Well, of course, this includes um, you know the new tech that we're looking at with uh, Apple's. Uh, it, 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 the The new rumor is they're going to be called Apple Reality Glasses. Yeah, yeah, we yeah. heard about the the trademark filings for Apple for reality. And yeah, of course, it's, clear, it's not just Apple, right? Microsoft's been working on real time three D for ages. Companies like Nvidia, Power. It. Uh, there's a number of big companies in the space. So this week, what I thought would be fun to do is to bring on a good friend of mine, someone I've worked with in the past and someone I have great respect for, who is an expert in this topic. He's been working at the very forefront of real-time 3D for more than a decade. So let's give a big welcome to Silvio Druan. Silvio, hi. Welcome Hello. to the Thanks for having me. <laughs> We're so happy to have you here. Uh, now, Silvio, your title is the SVP of Innovation at Unity. Mm -hmm. And um, Unity is one of those companies that flies under the radar for most people. Uh, I would say a lot of people deal with Unity or a lot of consumers touch Unity technology, but they're completely unaware of it. In a way, it's sort of like, you know, BASF or, or whatever that company is that, that says, you know, we don't make the magnetic tape, but we make it better. What does yeah. Unity do and how does it make real-time 3D better? But Unity is a, Unity is a, is what we call a game engine, and for a lot of people, you know, when I say this, they say, "What is a game engine?" You know, mm -hmm. it is the piece of software. It's a piece of uh, software that is used to do two things: to create games by game developer around the world, and it's also the engine that power those games, that make those games run when the consumer or the player download and install and play that game. So, you know, as much as people don't know about us uh, at the forefront as a brand, they certainly play, there's certainly 3 billion people uh, monthly that play Unity-made games on iOS, on Android, on PlayStation, on Nintendo Switch, on uh, Xbox, you know, on 
various uh, uh, platform. So this engine, which is called a 3D engine, a 3D game engine, is not just for games, is to power other type of application in the in various uh, industries, in film, in construction, in uh, architecture, simulation, digital twin, like, you know, there's like an unlimited number of application of, of well tech. We'll get into that in a minute because we definitely want to dig into some of those. You dropped a bunch of keywords there. But I think the big point that you just made, which I think is really important, is that there are 3 billion people on Earth who are playing games. You know, for most folks, uh, we tend to think of games as something that's secondary. You know, it tends to be something you think that your teenage kid plays in his bedroom or something. Uh, most people don't know, realize that more than half the population considers themselves gamers. And most people have at least a couple games on their mobile phone, about 60% of people. So 3 billion people are playing mobile games. I, I put that out there because when we hear about the metaverse, there's so much hype about the metaverse. But if you took all the people in the world who are currently using the metaverse, it's not even 100,000 people. It's a tiny number relative to the number that are using games. But 3D games are important because they're conditioning half the users of the internet every single time they play. They're conditioning them to 3D interfaces. Yeah, And, and 3D is how we deal with the world. 3D is what we're used to when we move around in the real world. Yeah. You know, if you think about it, it's a little bit unnatural that for 20 or 30 years, we've been sitting in front of digital screens and trying to understand the world through this rectangle of glass, uh, you know, a flat two-dimensional representation. And so in some ways, 3D might be the full realization of the potential of the web. But that's a hard thing to do. Tell us a little bit about the, the what makes it hard to create a 3D version of the web. What are the challenges? I think that it's it's hard to to understand how hard it's going to be to build as long as we don't understand what it is that we that we will need to build. You know, there, there is this representation of the metaverse of the spatial web as the Ready Player One experience, which is most probably what what it's not going to end up being. Okay, yeah. uh, so. I think that the why and the and 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 the what have not been answered yet. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, building a game is already a very tedious process because if you want to build something that is rich in in uh, content and narrative, there is a lot of work. And uh, building an experience to uh, to visualize a factory with IoT with thousands and thousands of of IoT device uh, connected to the actual 3D simulation. That's a different set of problems. Right? Okay. So okay. So uh, you're, you're saying that we need to do proper problem definition. And yes. Nobody's done a very good definition of what the metaverse is or what it should be no. or why we need it. Exactly. Okay. But let's talk a little bit about the challenges around 3D because this has been a long time coming. And and to yeah. put it in perspective, since games is the area where there's a lot of traction, and then and later we'll talk about how we grow from games into other fields. But games is an area where today there's a lot of use. It's worth bearing in mind, just to put this in a kind of historical perspective, 20 years ago, real-time 3D didn't exist. And it was really hard to render things on the fly. Or it was relatively primitive, let's put it like that. Um, you know, so people might recall that back in the day, console games that had the best power to render, uh, you know, render sequences, they had cut scenes, little movies that would happen in between, you know, when the system was moving you to the next level, yeah. you'd yeah. see a high resolution movie, but that was fully rendered in advance. It was basically just like playing a, a cartoon, yeah. uh, a 3D animation. And then you get into the game where the graphics were noticeably less vivid and less sharp and less crisp. Now, bring so us up to today. have been closing. 
Well, no, no, that's the point. Uh, bring us up to today. What has changed in 3D technology to make it possible now where you've got, you know, on a on an Xbox, it's like a motion picture. When you watch a, you know, a sports game, it looks like you're watching the NFL on television. What has changed in 3D technology in the last 20 years? But what's changed is the evolution of the GPU, you know, of, of the graphic the gra- card. Graphical yeah. processing unit. Yeah. I mean, it's like obviously the software to render evolve. But the hardware is what's been most uh, interesting, and it's going to carry on evolving. You know, and the companies. But, but I would like to. Use... I would like to. Yeah. But I, okay. I would like Robert to to outline. There's two different real time. Uh, there's two different meaning to the real time term. Okay, mm-hmm. real time these days is what we talk about when we can render a game in real time. It means that based on the input of a user, the game can change in real time. Real time applied to the metaverse or this like you know 3d layer that we're going to add to reality through various form of ar and is a different form of real time because it is a real time where yes things are going to be rendered in real time but things also the the data piece of the real time uh, aspect to the spatial web or the augmented reality set of experience that we'll see coming to us over the next decades that's a different set of, of real, that's a that's a different meaning Okay. Okay. Well, what's the difference between uh, the game responding to my input, or let's say an augmented reality experience responding to all the input of the world around it? The 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 basic difference is that the game answer to you using your, you know, the the source of uh, data that will affect the The game game is either your 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 screen that you touch on your phone or your joystick that you're going to use on your xbox right? so all the real-time input is coming from one user and exactly it's easy to track whereas in a simulation you need all the input from the whole world so it's a lot more information to track exactly exactly but i would assume that um game designers would make very good designers of the web 3 3 world for the the real world interfaces because they're just used to building in the 3D format. They're using building in the 3D format for one player or for maybe multiplayer, but that 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 all play using the same model. While an, an AR experience that will have a, a input from millions of data points, interacting data point, that is the one of the most difficult aspect of thinking about a a layer of reality presented in real time for end users. It's a different way of dealing. I mean, it's dealing with millions of data points to actually make sure that the, the proper content is triggered at the right time is a problem that game developer and game designer have not faced at all. So this comes back to like, how, how do we train Web three developers, um, you know, like you know, what are what are the skill sets they need? Is it a similar path to game well, designers? Or well, hang on a second, Brett. So you're conflating right. two concepts that are really important that we have to distinguish. I think Web three is a proposition that we're going to rebuild the web, the highly centralized Web two, which is based on these big internet platforms. Web three proposes to decentralize that using blockchain technologies. That's that's Web three. Yeah. What we're talking about here is is the 3D web. And I know the two terms are very similar, so I can see how it's confusing and it's easy to switch those two things. But I think it's important to maintain a clear line between that. 
But the other point you just raised, which is really important, is that there are not enough 3D developers right now in the world to build these uh, these re these realities, these alternate realities, whether it's the metaverse or some sort of industrial application like a model. And that's a big topic for this discussion. We should get into that in a bit. Um, but what Silvio is doing right now is telling us about what the challenges are. And I think this is the thing that people have been skeptical about when they hear about the 3D web. Uh, and we've been hearing this concept for more than a decade. I've certainly been hearing it since, you know, for even longer than that. Um, people become a little bit skeptical about it, frankly, because it never seems to happen. It sounds like a sunrise, an eternal sunrise where the sun never fully rises on this industry. But one of the reasons for that is that the problem set is incredibly difficult. It's an incredibly big challenge. I don't think people grasp just how big a challenge it is. So what Sylvia was just describing is that within a... Um, Within the context of a game, you can shrink the number of variables down. Uh, the game world is known. The game, the level map is known. The number of you know uh, advers ad adversaries or bosses or hurdles you have to face, those are all known. And so the only variables then are user input, which is hard. That's, that's plenty difficult. Uh, and then the game responds in real time to that and renders all that stuff. For people who are not familiar with 3D rendering, what's important to note is that this is very different from what you see in a motion picture where we've had 3D special effects for a long time, for 30 years. Yeah, uh, The special effects in a movie, you're talking about just one aspect, one angle, one view, and it's locked off. It's rarely moving. Um, and so that can be rendered with a lot of precision, but it takes months and months and months of rendering time to generate that. So typically with a movie, uh, they'll finish principal photography with actors on the stage in front of green screen, and then they'll spend nine months or a year in post-production rendering frame by frame those shots and those sequences in the background so you can see the monsters and the special effects and the aliens and spaceships and all that stuff that doesn't exist that can't be photographed. But that's a very different proposition from what we're talking here. Real time means the camera can move, the player can move, and the whole world has to be re-rendered in real time to support that. Yeah, I mean, so let me like like I think we can use a very simple example for the audience. But a simple example, if if I play a game, if I have a game, I don't know, like it could be like a, a shooting zombie game. Okay, if I play this game immerse in a VR headset, mm -hmm. uh, I know the game knows exactly where the character are. I can move the character around. I can move my own character around. It's easy. The constraints are well understood okay if i take this game and i play I, and 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 i want to make sure that it's it can be played against it against the physical reality around me i have to cope with because i don't know in which environment my user is going to be so i have to build a very different game okay the, and a, a game that can that that will have to work everywhere i could be at the park i could be in my kitchen i could be in my living room i could be on the bus i could be anywhere mm -hmm. okay so if you think about this and you think about the type of ex, of of experience that will be produced the complexity is uh, exponential that's right. That's right. Because you have to be able to render it from every one of those perspectives, right? So yes. you know, the view from the bus is going to be very different from the view from the bus stop or something. Exactly. The other factor is is other people, right? So multiplayer introduces tremendous amounts of complexity because now the system has to render multiple points of view for multiple people at the same time. And it has to do that with absolutely precise synchronization. It can't be off by a millisecond because it would ruin the illusion for one of the other players. Not only that, but it can, you know, there's evidence that could make you 
sick, for example, nausea. Well, that's, that's exactly right. That's why people get seasick when they're wearing a VR headset. If there's yeah. even a, a millisecond or two of, of lag time, you know, so when you turn your head and it takes a second for the world to catch up, you feel seasick because that's yeah. the experience we have when we're on a, on a ship at sea. So you're exactly right, Brett. And so the the um, the more users you add, the more complex that rendering problem becomes and the more processing power that you need. Have I got it right so far? Mm -hmm. Okay, so, so this is one of the reasons why the metaverses that have been built so far are not very you know well populated. They're sparsely populated because the system simply can't support thousands and thousands of multiple. Can you give us an example of what you you think about the what's been built so far in terms of, of metaverses? Like, do you consider like Roblox uh, as metaverse or it's, it's well, a fine I, question? I, I yeah. consider it like a primitive version of the metaverse, certainly, yeah. you know. Um, so, you know, so because game, a lot of the things you're talking about, Rob, we can do in Roblox, but it's just very low, um, low fidelity. That's right. So let's break it down like this. There are game worlds today that do support millions and millions of users. Those include Roblox and Fortnite, and they're excellent games. But to the point we we're making a minute ago, those are worlds that are designed for a single purpose, principally for one main purpose, which is to play a game. So a lot of the variables are known. Now, of course, they're expanding into things like games and performance art and so forth. So those are like a proto metaverse, to Brett's point. But they're all yeah, but don't forget Fortnite doesn't you can't be a million user in the same game instance. That's so exactly right. In the yeah. end, you can be like I think it's like a hundred player per game instance, which yeah. means that it's like a multiplayer game. That's exactly right. And that's okay. the limitation we're just talking about. The ability to render multiple points of view simultaneously is a very challenging problem. Yeah. Um, the second kind of metaverse, though, is this non-game metaverse. And to Silvio's point earlier. Those metaverses aren't very well defined. We're not sure what they're for. If you listen to people like Mark Zuckerberg share their vision, you know, they tell you that we'll do everything we do in the real world. We'll have meetings, we'll have friends, we'll we'll have parties, we'll, you know, we'll watch TV shows and look at PowerPoints inside of virtual worlds. I'm not sure that's such a compelling use case. Um, but you know, certainly uh, Facebook's um, Horizon Worlds is an example of a prototypical metaverse. And there are non-centralized versions. Uh, companies like Decentraland and Sandbox have launched their own versions. Um, but these also run into the exact same constraints that we just spoke about, right? So so what we're trying to do right now in this part of the show is define what are the hard problems to solve for yeah. a real-time 3D web to actually happen. And one that we've come up against right very clearly in this very part, early part of the show is that we don't have a way to render that much simultaneously. Like we can't support a million simultaneous users. Do you think that's going to be solved in the future? Do you think there's a way to do that in the future? I mean, uh... This, this is not just about rendering. There's like you know, there is multiple problem uh, associated with with a million user, and it's also like, do we want to be, do you want to be in a world where there is a million user at the same time? You know, that's another uh, issue. You know, like, can we find narrative and and game narrative that lead to a game where you would be a million user with a million user? I think that you know, when we talk about the real time three D web, we're, we're I think it's important to to outline that you know that they are games games is not the real-time 3d web what i see as the real-time 3d web you know there is two things it's 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 first it is a way to present information using three-dimensional interface mm -hmm. okay the uh question here is is that useful Okay. Yes, I can present like an Amazon product or something I want to shop for mm -hmm. as a 3D object that I can manipulate on my screen or in my VR headset. Is that useful to complete my shopping or to enhance my shopping 
experience, mm -hmm. not proven yet. Okay. Mm -hmm. So, and then the the other aspect of this is is yes, will I serve the web? going from an experience to the other experience to the other experience like I do today when I use my web browser and, and I go from link to link to link to link. Mm -hmm. Do I need to, do we see a future where uh, uh, Fortune 500 companies, retail shops, uh, anything will want to present their information in 3D? It's probably a, a mixture of what you have today and what is going to be actually useful for the user to see in 3D. Not clear yet. Again, no, but are you talking about you're talking about AR applications, right? No, I'm going to come to AR now. Okay. The other aspect of this is a 3D layer on top of the physical reality right, that right. user experience every day. That is probably going to be more useful. Okay, there's a lot of very useful application to add a 3D layer when I'm visiting a city, when I'm looking for the right road to take to get to a place, you know, like it's, it's, that's, there's like multiple application, uh, fixing the, the, the worker working in a factory or a plant to do like a repair of like some machinery. So that's very useful, okay? So the first one, which is when we talk about the 3D web, which is like the, you know, the transition from 3D experience to 3D experience is a bit less defined in terms of how useful it's gonna be. The second one, which is, which is the augmented reality one, it's much clearer that it's going to be very useful. Now, on top of these things, you have games and you have entertainment, and that's 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 not going to change. Entertainment in a VR it has not been proven to be very appealing yet. You know, of the 10 million Quest 2 that have been sold, not many users use them. They're mostly yeah. in the closet. Okay, that's right. So they use them twice a month on average. Yeah. We've tried. It's because one of the reasons that we've tried to jam linear contents you know games that were built for 2d screens even if it if it's if they're rendering in 3d the actual narrative mm -hmm. is like very is like a linear progression of scene in a vr even if it's if it's still render using the, the same 3d tech you have more than 3d you have more than three dimension because you can move your head you can move your your, your hands you can do a lot of things that you cannot do with a 2d screen in front of you okay mm -hmm. so so we have not understood the actual narrative of how to create very compelling vr experiences and and games we're like you know we're like film was like 125 years ago where it took 15 years to actually find the, the the to uh, to to actually the uh, cinematic language the, the language of, yeah 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 the language of so film we're at the same stage here that's and that's right. why people are not are not using this so okay. roblox is like the silent movies of the metaverse it's like the silent movie very well said <laughs> yeah. all right let me see if i can round this up then so so what we've covered so far is that real-time 3d is emerging and it's useful today in game worlds persistent game worlds things like roblox fortnite and other mm -hmm. games um, and by the way there's like a thousand of those game worlds isn't that this is not a small thing and they're used by three billion people the big question and maybe the big opportunity is can this be extended to other fields um, for other kinds of entertainment or social applications, business applications, industrial uses, maybe city planning or transportation planning, simulations for the environment and so forth. That's a question we'll get into in the second half. But what we've already heard in this first part is a really important distinction that Brett brought up, which is that there's really two kinds of real-time 3D applications or worlds, if you will. One is an immersive experience that you go into, 
like a virtual reality or a game world. That's a destination. I'm gonna, gonna immerse myself in this other world. Uh, many of the metaverse concepts seem to be built on that premise. But the second one is one where you kind of cover the world around you, the real world. You cover that world with data. You have you you paint the world with pixels, if you will, the real world. And yeah. now that's visible augmented augmented yeah. reality experience. Yeah. So that distinction, I think it's important for our audience to get that, that there's two kinds. There's immersive worlds, 3D worlds that you might go into, or the real world that might be covered with data. We're going to go to a break now. And after break, we'll come back and we'll delve into some of the applications and use cases of this technology. So you're listening okay. to The Futurists. Uh, it's myself, Robert Tursik, and Brett King, my co-host, and we're interviewing Sylvia Duran. Stick with us because in the second half, we're going to get into the practical use cases. Welcome to Breaking Banks, the number one global fintech radio show and podcast. I'm Brett King. And I'm Jason Henricks. Every week since 2013, we explore the personalities, startups, innovators, and industry players driving disruption in financial services. From incumbents to unicorns, and from cutting-edge technology to the people using it to help create a more innovative, inclusive, and healthy financial future. I'm J.P. Nichols, and this is Breaking Banks. Welcome back to The Futurists. I'm Brett King, your host with Robert Tershek, and our guest today is Silvio Druin from Unity. Um, Silvio, um, one of the things that sort of comes into this world of AR and, and so forth that we're talking about is the, the concept that when we need to represent you in the virtual world or place you in a, an augmented reality world, we need to be able to you know, understand some things about you. And this extends into multiple areas now that we're thinking of um, around this concept called a digital twin or a digital equivalent of yourself. We also have the emergence of digital persons, which will be, you know, non-player non characters, if you like, that will we'll interact in this world. But the digital twin concept, how does that fit into this emerging world of, of VR and AR? The digital twin concept is probably, uh, you know, when we were talking earlier about the, the 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 why of the metaverse, is probably one of the most uh, well understood and useful concept, you know, and they are real projects, real project and real usage, and the digital twin is really a way to represent the outside world to enhance the interaction of real user with this real world. So example, if I do a digital twin of the of an entire airport, I will be able to enhance the interaction that my travelers going through this airport have with the airport facilities. Something that I would not be able to do if I did not have a digital representation, a digital twin representation of that airport. So you can apply this to anything, you know, buildings and mall and uh, a block of a city or an entire one, uh, a plant, uh, you know, anything that is a physical system can be transformed into a digital twin. Maybe that's why you know, that sort of makes it interesting for Amazon's acquisition of Roomba. Yeah. Because Roomba gives you a, a primitive way of mapping out 3D virtual spaces, at least a floor plan. Yeah. Exactly. That's right. Yeah. That's right. And actually, you know, these phones that we have here, uh, 
you know, the, the reason there's three cameras on this phone is that that's how the phone can sense three dimensions, right? It's able to capture, uh, it's able to do that dimensional mapping. Um, people don't realize that, but your phone is constantly measuring the, the you know, environment around you. Uh, so we, we're starting to develop then sensors. That's all the phone really is in that instance, is a kind of sophisticated sensor that can sense three dimensions. So we, we're starting to solve the problem of sensing in three dimensions. That means that the network or you know the, the, the cloud computing system can have an understanding of the 3D world around you. That's one part of the problem, but that's not the whole problem. The other problem then is to render all that in real time. That's what we were talking about in the previous section. You know, th this concept of digital twins not new. It's been around for more than 30 years. Early mm -hmm. use cases were uh, CERN's Large Hadron Collider. You know, it's a gigantic uh, multi-kilometer installation that's just too which big for a human to, to which, I, which I had a chance to see with the personal oh, private... Uh, so that's an, that's an example of an industrial installation that's so big that no human can yeah. see the whole thing at one time. Therefore, you need a, a digital simulation in order to understand it. Exactly. Uh, the earliest users of, of digital twins are NASA. They were used in space because most of uh, deep space exploration today isn't done by humans. It's done by robotic systems. And so yeah. all those Voyager, uh, all those Voyager systems that are sent out into deep space or into the, you know, into the deeper into our solar system. It's more like the rover that are, that are basically yeah. mapping Mars, you know. So, uh... so the, those throw off telemetry data that can be captured and used to render kind of a digital version here on the earth. And that's how you can control that remote system and understand where it is and how, you know, what its attitude is and position is and where it's at and so forth. So those are like remote control systems and monitoring systems. Um, but I think what's important about the new generation of digital twins for industry is that they're no longer used just to monitor or render or show us a picture. They're also used to control those systems. In other words, the model is starting to be controlling the real world. And that's where artificial intelligence and real-time data become extremely important for digital twins today. You have to have high fidelity data and you have to have an AI that you really trust because it's going to be making decisions, not only about what you see, but about what actually happens in the real world. That might be a factory or a plant or a business process. Can you comment a little bit about uh, the use of simulation in industry this way, 3D simulations? Simulation is really different than you know. It's it, it's it's related to digital twin and not. I mean, it's it's more used in in the world of in the industrial world today to simulate and understand the problems in complex physical system before they actually happen. Mm -hmm. And uh, and it's also obviously to simulate those complex system before you actually build them so that you make sure that they, they're going to work. And so the uh, the amount of uh, data, AI and machine learning that we can feed into this basically enable those physical system builder to understand the problems and the intricacies of what they're going to build. And that's that's one way to generalize this. There's obviously like various case and, and and but in order to understand this as to why we would do 3d simulation that's the reason that's right there, uh, yeah. there's also the fact that if you have built a simulation of the way a machinery machinery or system will work that once that is built you could use that same simulated data or that same design data to overlay for example, 3D virtual understanding Absolutely. of uh, problem solving and fault solving and so forth. The ultimate example of that not being necessarily just fixing equipment in a factory, but something in the case of like um, augmented uh, surgery, 
where uh, surgeons are using that data, you know, uh, uh, previous scans of, you know, a tumor or something like that in, a, in an operating uh, environment. Simulation also applies, you know, like if I'm building an airport again, let's let, let's come back to the example. Uh, and I want to know with the architecture or the plan that I have, how the travelers will walk and flow through this airport, I can actually simulate this to understand what I need to change in order to make sure that there's no bottleneck. That's right. And that's a really good point, um, because I think some people might be wondering, how does a game engine fit into all of this? Uh, We've been able to use 3D, you know, uh, computer aided design systems for for decades now. So there have been all sorts of ways to render architecture in 3D. That's not new. That's not new. Simulation is really basically the merging of AI and a game engine. And the the reason we use a game engine is because the game engine has the motion, the kinematics, the physics, the people moving around. So you can populate that 3D model, the the architecture, if you will. You can populate that model with people and dogs and you know kids playing basketball and balls bouncing, exactly. and all the physics of that will be uh, will be will be quite accurate. That's really important for anyone who's doing planning, like urban planning or industrial planning or space. Robots planning. in a factory, you know, you you really want to actually understand well how they're going to interact. So yeah. uh, that's another example as well. And and those systems can be used to train an AI as well. So an artificial yes. intelligence can take really, you know, a virtual world that's rendered in 3D, what to us would look like a game world uh, simulation, but populated with simulated people, simulated animals, simulated trees, and so forth. All this stuff is really high high verisimilitude now. It's high accuracy. This is a, this is a very good point uh, you just made. Simulation is... Uh, a very good way to actually produce the data that will be used to train the neural net models. Right? So uh, that's another way to, uh, you know, there's like, uh, if you have complex neural network and you don't, usually you don't have the actual data that you need, simulation can be used to generate that data. Yeah, that's right. And that's useful for training purposes. So with ML, uh, with machine learning, more data, equals more training, which means you yeah. get to a better result fast. Exactly. And so we can, we can accelerate the training, uh, you know, kind of like uh, collapse the learning curve for the ML mm-hmm. system by using a simulated world. Uh, yeah. We're getting deep into the weeds here, um, but the, the, the promise of all this technology, from my viewpoint, is that something like industrial metaverse might emerge as a more compelling use case sooner than consumer metaverse. Earlier, you said there's not a really compelling consumer use case for the metaverse. I think that's probably true. Most people are sort of like, meh, you know, they're not sure why they would use it. Why would I put on a VR headset to go to the office? On the other hand, there's already compelling use cases in industry for simulation. Those are already widely used. Right. We can, we can train astronauts in the 3D space. We can train surgeons in the 3D space. We can And we can, and we can train robots and, and artificial learning systems. Uh, so, but so, is it the metaverse? Is it the metaverse? Because the metaverse is really about the connection of the different experience together. Mm. If I have a single use case, which is example, a simulation of an airport, is that the actual metaverse? If it's not connected to anything outside, I think that there is a confusion in what the actual metaverse is. You know, If I have a single application of my AR glasses mm. to, I don't know, and there is like, maybe I have like, five apps on it. One is to find my my way around the city. Another one is to help me make food. Another one is to help me do this, do this, okay? 
is this the actual metaverse? If I go from, uh, I'm in New York, I'm at the Empire State Building, and I put my glasses on so that I can understand the history of, of the place, and I can press a button or I can tap a button and be transported into a game where the Empire State Building is, then it starts to be, you know, I think that over the years, over the coming next years, we're gonna we're gonna start to understand the actual the, the word metaverse as a set of linked experiences. Okay, how do we get there? Like, how do we get what What do we need to solve between today and that vision of the future to get there? Yeah, what's stopping us from having a metaverse today? But I think that you know, I think that the initiative like the Open Metaverse yeah. Standard uh, is a very good is a very good effort into this direction. You know. Okay. Uh, okay, so that that's about interoperability between worlds. And for folks who don't know what the term interoperability means, it means, um, well, for instance, when uh, the, the apps you download on your iPhone won't work on your Android phone, that's because they're not interoperable. If you have data that's trapped in one software program and you can't move it over the way things used to be with, say, your contacts in Microsoft Office, uh, you couldn't export those out easily uh, in the past. That was that was because it was not interoperable. Sometimes that's by design. In the tech world, tech companies often like to foist a proprietary standard that locks people into their system. Um, but already now, in, even in this early stage of the metaverse, uh, a lot of industry leaders, not all, but a lot of the companies that are in the lead have come together to create an interoperability forum to make sure that the worlds they build can link together and people can easily migrate from one world to the next. Uh, so that's the point that Sylvia was raising. I think that's a good point, but there's other stuff that has to happen as well. If we're really going to start to create simulations of the world, aren't we going to need a completely new generation of processors? And and what's the load on the network? These are big data models. Yeah, and the energy requirements, around. yeah. It's huge. It's huge. It's expensive uh, because it, it's expensive to use, I you know, a thousand or 10,000 GPU in, in the cloud. So uh, the infrastructure, the computational infrastructure will have to seriously uh, evolve and uh, and grow in order to and while you know keeping this to an a affordable price yeah uh, in order for us to actually uh, you know go into this uh, full speed so obviously the real time 3d web is a great thing for the companies that make the graphical processing units those are companies like nvidia and amd for instance uh, silicon manufacturers but that's a considerable cost that someone's going to have to bear um, is that one of the reasons why this hasn't been broadly taken up outside of specific use cases and you know very specific micro worlds and simulations for particular industries? Is that one of the reasons why it hasn't broadly caught on? No, I think that on from an industrial perspective, it it has caught on. I mean, it's it's clear that more and more and more companies, as I you know as I had said like you know five years ago, that there's going to be a need uh, for fortune or there's going to be a want or a need for Fortune 500 company to start going from a 2D world to a 3D world mm -hmm. uh, in all sort of use of, of use cases, and that is happening. That's clear. Okay. What's not clear is the, and it's clear also that 3D that uh, the the consumer is playing 3D games. Okay. So right. that's clear. Right? Right. What's not clear is the uh, browsing of the internet using a 3D you know, a set of of 3D experience or interfaces. And then again, what is this, you know, how will AR pan out and how will VR pan out? Mm -hmm. So that's not clear yet. Okay. So maybe it's a periphery, around the periphery, industrial use cases on one hand, 
consumers playing video games, on the other hand, um, we're starting, you know, we, we kind of work our way towards something new in the middle that spans exactly. both. Do you think there's a possibility that the web that we understand as today, you know, this idea of basically a bunch of destinations, they're usually rectangles of information, you know, text-based worlds, uh, even if you think about YouTube is just a bunch of rectangles with text links. Yeah, that's the web that we have today. Do you think that might just exist in parallel to some 3D world uh, metaverse or some 3D um, experience that is very different from the web that we're familiar with, the web we've had for the last 30 or 40 years? Yeah, what happens I, mean, I don't know if browser? I can answer your, your question completely clearly, but I think that we, don't, we are not going to one day wake up and suddenly everything is, is going to be... No, of course not. In, yeah, in, yeah, in, yeah. No, of course in front not. Of us. So there's going to be mixture of, you know, and coexisting of, of 2D experiences with 3D portals. And, you know, mm. we're not going to... This is going to be... And, and we might be 20 years from now still reading article in a 2D web browser. You know, we're not going to necessarily want to read you know, so it's always going to be this mixture. And I think that over time, the mixture will be very clearly defined as the use case become more clear and as the usage become more clear, which is which it is not today. Right? OK, well, tell us what you envision for the future. So one of the things we love to do on this show is to is to get a forecast. You want the take long term? Uh, you want the long term? Yeah, yeah. yeah. take us out yeah. 10, 20, 30 years when all these uh, these kind of narrowly network problems have been solved. The long term vision, what I see is obviously the evolution of augmented reality to a level where it enhances our life. And we don't have to scroll on our phone all day because today we spend our entire day on the phone pulling information to us, which is mean that we scroll and we scroll and we scroll nonstop right? all day. And uh, I think that we'll move away from that world to a world where uh, where content will be contextualized, triggered based on the context right, 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 that right. I am in. You know, I will manifest intent, and based on the computation of millions of data points, this content will come to me, and that will basically, hopefully, I would hope that it will uh, allow us to have better human-to-human -human interaction and not be always on our phone. And so I believe that this will evolve a lot. And that's a very interesting, much more so to me than the VR aspect of what we're talking about. And I believe so. I believe this in terms of evolution long term, machine learning and uh, and AI will obviously evolve, you know, a lot. Now, if we can make quantum computing work the mixture of quantum computing and machine learning will be very, very important. Very, very also dangerous, but very, very important. Yeah, we're we'll still some way up. away from that right now. We'll yeah. still so, 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 some way, you know, it could be 20 years, it could be 50, I don't know. But once we have this, once we have connected machine learning and quantum computing, uh, we will, I think that long-term, 50 like years, 100 years, we're going to connect nanotechnology systems to, 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 to that. So then you're going to have a very powerful AI able to create physical things. So uh, that's one of the, that's a bit of like, you know, long-term, long-term, if you really ask me long-term, that's what I, I believe is going to happen. I, I just had a conversation with a technologist who I'm uh, friendly with, who said that he is now using, um, AI for game design. And he said, look, it's a hack. It doesn't work hundred percent, but this is his technique. He'll be with his daughter at the park and he'll start talking to GPT-3 and he'll start with a short description of a game and ask GPT-3 to write 
a game description. And he said he gets a decent game description. Yeah. I then tried he, then he uses, he takes that description and goes to Dolly 2 or to Mid Journey and asks it to simulate or knock out some uh, AI generated images, you know, some yep. to portray like what might that look like, that game description. Now he gets some images generated. Um, and then he goes over to another system that allows him to simulate a rough model of a game. And he said, look, it's not perfect. It's, it's a, cheesy hack but he said with zero effort while he's playing in the park with his daughter he can actually start to knock out screens of a potential game design and at least get to the point to say is this worth pursuing is this worth exploring what you're describing is that in this future scenario where these artificial intelligence systems are so good that they can generate not just words and text or images but they can actually start to generate entire experiences and maybe even start to engineer physical products for us yeah that's that's your vision for the future. That's yeah. a powerful, a powerful. It, well, I, I, you know, I started to think about this like seven years ago, where I'm like, what is the future of content creation? Right. And I'm like, if I want to bring like, you know, a hundred million, uh, half a billion creator to create content, it's way too hard today. So it was clear to me that machine learning driven content authoring will would be the actual future. Yeah. And we are, you know, if you look at GDP tree and you look at DALI and you look at mine journey and you look at others, uh, we going to get there. We're going to get there within like, you know, the next decade, we'll be able to create complete 3D scene and complete 3D games by just talking to the game engine. Yeah. And that's very powerful. You know? Yeah. Yeah. In fact, yesterday on Twitter, I saw a woman uh, has developed a hack she's she's built some sort of system where she can take all the single frames of a video so she just shoots a video of herself walking down the street yeah. and she can get uh dolly 2 to generate um and line up almost perfect with almost perfect precision a virtual outfit and so it renders it scene by scene and then she found another program she can import all those individual shots into and it recreates the video and what she ends up with is um, basically simulation mapped onto the video stream that she started with. And again, it's a hack. It's a workaround. Yeah, but those sort of things that we're closing the gap on those capabilities so pretty quickly now. So fast. Yeah. Exactly. That's what's so astonishing. I mean, GPT-3. I saw a, a well, it, I've heard talk about GPT-4 that it's going to change the world. Yeah. Right. That um, it, it is the closest thing to the Turing test that we've ever seen. Secondly, you know, I've seen demonstrations recently with these AI, um, you know, artistic tools taking a video frame. And in the example I saw was a tennis player playing on a tennis court and completely changing the environment so that you take the tennis player and put him on the surface of Mars or the moon or whatever, just by uh, telling the AI to change the, uh, the background environment. It's evolving very, very fast right now. Yeah. So that means we're going to be giving superpowers to everybody very soon where people with just, uh, just by talking to a phone or by typing a few commands on a keyboard, they'll be able to generate video scenes and manipulate video scenes. So I have a real concern about this because that's like giving people superpowers to generate a lot of deep fakes and they will be incredibly compelling deep fakes. And you can just imagine where that's going to lead to. I, I think we're already there, you know, like right now we could create convincing deep fakes. This is where we need to have a different way of thinking about um, not just digital assets, but, 
identity and those sort of things. You know, I, like you think about the fact that today we carry around a physical driver's license and a passport to identify ourselves in the in the physical world. That's not going to work in a world of deep fakes and so forth because you're going to be able to simulate someone almost per- perfectly. The only way you're going to be able to tell is whether it's a synthetic ID or or a real person ID. I think, but. I think the con- the concept of identity, which is more related to your to what you were initially talking about about Web three, is key to uh, to the future of uh, of entering this new era of a massive more amount of data that's going to come at us. Yeah, and, and, and data so that can be manipulated the, the by various people usage, or machines. Yeah, yeah the, the various usage of this uh, tech deepfake being one is going to become more and more and more dangerous if we don't establish some form of real identity which is you know too easy to 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 fake right now yeah you know we need exactly. to do something about this because wow. well, uh, you know we we will be certainly getting into the topic of identity in a future episode of the futurists yeah. uh, it's interesting it's big, that it parallels it right it's yeah it's interesting how topic. we talked about 3d for the whole uh podcast but then we end up saying oh you know what in order to evolve in this world of 3d we're going to need to protect identity and and really identify the source of, of yeah, the yeah. yeah all so, this ability to simulate different worlds leads us to question what the real world consists of and what's really true so we yeah. end up questioning the truth and questioning reality crazy yeah, because, topic to end on yeah because you see imagine that in 20 years or 15 years you've got a uh, rendering of reality so uh, photorealistic that you cannot understand if what you're looking at is the real world or yeah. the digital world. Where does that go? It's a Where simulation, that, man. You know? Well, on that note, thank you so much, <laughs> Sylvia Duran, uh, Senior Vice President of Innovation from Unity. Thank you so much for joining us this week on The Futurists. It's been a real great pleasure talking to you. Thank you. If you liked listening to The Futurist this week, you know what you can do. You can give us a five-star review. You can give us a shout-out on social media. All of that helps other people find uh, the episodes and the content, and that helps us uh, support the program on an ongoing basis. Also, my thanks go out to the production team uh, and the team behind us uh, supporting us from Provoke, including uh, Lisbeth Severance, uh, uh, Kevin Hirschham, uh, Sylvie, and uh, Carlo working on the social media side. And, uh, of course, out to you guys. Um, But uh, we will be back next week with more compelling future-focused content. Until then, we'll see you in the future. Well, that's it for The Futurists this week. If you like the show, we sure hope you did. Please subscribe and share it with the people in your community. And don't forget to leave us a five-star review. That really helps other people find the show. And you can ping us anytime on Instagram and Twitter at, at Futurist Podcast for the folks that you'd like to see on the show or the questions that you'd like us to ask. Thanks for joining. And as always, we'll see you in the future.